Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. This audio will cover Matthew 14, verses 22 to the end of the chapter. It will cover Jesus' walking on the water and Peter's walking on the water. We start with verse 22. Immediately he, that's Jesus, made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. The boat was the boat that they had come over from Capernaum to Bethsaida, Bethsaida Julius, and he made the disciples get in that boat and go ahead of him to the other side. Matthew doesn't say where on the other side. There's a huge harmonization problem that goes with that issue of where on the other side they were going to, and we'll talk about that in a minute, while he dismissed the crowds. So he dismissed the crowds and sent the disciples away. Now, he had spent all day feeding the 5,000. The crowds knew he was the Messiah after the miraculous feeding. John 6:14 says this, when the people saw the sign he had done, the feeding of the 5,000, they said, this really is the prophet who was to come into the world. That's probably referring to Moses, Deuteronomy 18:18, the prophet that Moses had predicted. This is the prophet who was to come into the world. Jesus did not want these guys to start a political revolution or to start a messianic uprising. So he dismissed them. He wanted to get away. He didn't want things to get out of hand. And so he sent the disciples away, and he sent the crowds away. Plus, he wanted to pray by himself. Now, let's look at the problem of where the other side is, the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Remember, Capernaum is on the northeast side. That's where they came from. And Bethsaida Julius is on the northwest side. That's where they came from. The two cities are about four miles apart, so we're not talking about a long way. But if you get on a boat and cross the very top northern part of the Sea of Galilee, you can go from Capernaum to somewhere around Bethsaida. So they were going back now, back to Capernaum on the uh, northeast side of the Sea of Galilee. And here's where the harmonization problem comes from. Comes from. John 6:17 says that the disciples got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. Darkness had already set in, but Jesus had not yet come to them. So they went to Capernaum in John 6:17. But Mark says in Mark 6, verse 45, immediately he made his disciples go into the boat get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. Well, that's kind of interesting. In one place it says, in John, it says that the disciples went back to Capernaum, and in, the, in Mark it says the disciples went to the other side to Bethsaida. How can it be both? All right, well, let's look and see how we might reconcile these two things. And I'll say before I get started, this is considered one of the most difficult harmonization problems in the New Testament, according to Dr. Lacona, the famous, I shouldn't say famous, the well-known New Testament scholar, he's got a list of attempted solutions at his website. He doesn't agree with any of them, and he just throws his hands up and says, I don't know. Well, I think we might can do a little bit better than that. I mean, I'm not a scholar or anything, but I can, I can make a stab at it. Let's look at some options to reconcile these two verses. But before we get started, we need to show that the problem is compounded because there are possibly two Bethsaidas. Bethsaida Julius, that's the one east-northeast of Capernaum, near the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And then there is, and we know that city existed, then there's another hypothesized city called Bethsaida in Galilee, which is supposedly southwest of Capernaum on the western shore, northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Where does the idea come that that city existed? It has not been found. John 12, verse 21 says this, So they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and requested of him, Sir, we want to see Jesus. So John refers to a Bethsaida in Galilee, but the problem is that's a little bit ambiguous, because Bethsaida in Galilee could very well be referring to Bethsaida Julius on the north 
northeastern, uh, northwestern, sh northeastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. So, let's go to some options to reconcile these two scriptures, Mark 6.45 and John 6.17. First option, this is the option proposed by the scholar Dr. James White and the scholar Linsky, both of well-known New Testament scholars. They say they were in a wilderness belonging to Bethsaida, Julius, somewhere around. Obviously, they weren't in the city. They were because they fed 5,000 people and there was no place to buy food. So they were in a wilderness somewhere near the city, and they went back to Capernaum. But on the way, they went toward Bethsaida because the Greek for they went toward Bethsaida is pros Bethsaidon, to Bethsaida, and pros can mean toward as well as to. Anytime you look at Greek prepositions, they're very fuzzy and slippery and ambiguous, so it could be. So what these scholars are saying is that Jesus was, was the, and the disciples were on a plane somewhere near Bethsaida, told the disciples to get in the boat. I suppose they were still east of Bethsaida, and said, go toward Bethsaida on your way to Capernaum. I've got no problem with that. I think, in fact, I think that's the best solution right there, especially when you consider that Capernaum was a suburb of Bethsaida. So you're going toward Bethsaida, you're going toward Capernaum. They were only four miles apart. Another option, this is Adam Clark's option, is Jesus ordered them to steer to one or other of the two places. In other words, he's, he's, in other words he said to the disciples, get into the boat, and at your option, go either to Bethsaida or Capernaum. And, and John reported that Jesus had said they were going to Capernaum, and... Mark reported that Jesus had told them to go to Bethsaida, but he actually told them to go one of the other two places. After all, they were very close to each other. The idea being that Jesus would catch up with them later once he got rid of the crowds. He could have found them in either place. Somehow, I don't know how. But anyway, that's the second option. The third option is they were, they were going to Capernaum as originally planned, but they ended up going to Bethsaida in Galilee, the the so-called the alleged city for which there is controversial evidence that it exists there's controversial arguments that it exists on the eastern on the western side of the sea of galilee and so they were going to capernaum but the wind shifted they ended up in bethsaida in galilee on the western side and that's just right south of capernaum so they just walked on up to capernaum that's the third option the fourth option is the rem and this is my idea, and of course, you can take this with a grain of salt, because I'm no New Testament scholar, but the remote place could be where the feeding took place east of Bethsaida, Julius, and they could have originally planned to go to Bethsaida, Julius, just like Mark said, they planned to go, to, they got in the boat to go to Bethsaida, but then when they got on the, on the, uh, on the sea, the wind blew them instead over to Capernaum. I don't see why that can't work, but again, I haven't really vetted that for possible problems there's a lot of problems uh, this is a very difficult problem as i said you can get on the internet and find lots of suggested solutions to it but i just introduced some possible harmonizations now let's look at some options as to why jesus dismissed the disciples he wanted the disciples gone because if the disciples stayed around then it would have been hard to dismiss the crowds and he wanted the crowds to leave he didn't want them to start a revolution a messianic revolt he wanted them to leave, and if the disciples were still there, it would be hard for them to leave because the crowds would have seen the disciples, and then they would think, aha, where the disciples are, Jesus is, are, Jesus is and that means that this Jesus is, is going to come back to meet his disciples, and therefore we're not going anywhere. And Jesus did want that. That makes a lot of sense. That's John Gill's idea. Another idea is from Adam Clark. 
the disciples were afraid to get in the boat to go back home to Capernaum, and Jesus had to order them to get in the boat because the disciples were afraid of Herod Antipas because of all the uproar that was going on. They were afraid that Herod Antipas might come after them and arrest them. And when Jesus said uh, to go back, that would be without Jesus. He's staying in the mountains to pray, and they'd be scared to go. So Jesus said, go, get in the boat. He made them go. Another option that Clark has, and I, which an option I doubt very seriously, is Jesus had things to say to the multitude he didn't want the disciples to hear. So he sent the disciples away. I think that's preposterous, really. Why would he tell something to strangers that he didn't want his intimate disciples to know? So I think it's either it's because he was trying to get rid of the crowds and wanted the disciples out of the way to help him get rid of the crowds, or he was trying to urge them to go back and not be afraid of Aaron Antipas, and so he had to urge them to get in the boat and go back despite the risk. Matthew 14, verses 23 to 24. After dismissing the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. The mountain is unknown. This, by the way, was contrary to the customs of the Jews. They forbade playing in a place even a little raised because of all the altars, all the idols that were on the mountains all throughout Jewish history. But Jesus went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And notice that that is a good application here. You work hard all day ministering. You better take some time to pray by yourself away from the people you're ministering to. When evening came there, he was alone. No disciples, no crowd. But the boat was already over a mile from land, verse 24 continues, battered by the waves because the wind was against them. Now here Jesus put them in the boat. Now I don't know if Jesus knew that the wind was going to be blowing backwards against them and stirring up a storm on the sea when he put them in the boat. I don't know that. We don't know. But it's amazing how many times Jesus asks us to do stuff that we think is not comfortable. Why did you do that, Lord? Why did you put me in this bad place? And that's where the disciples were. They were put in a bad place by Jesus. Of course, not for malevolent reasons, of course. What was Jesus praying about up on that mountain? He could sit up on the mountain. He could look out over the sea. The disciples couldn't see him, but, they could, but, they, but Jesus could see them. He could see that they were in trouble. He might have been praying about the fact that they were in the ocean fighting the wind and the waves. He could have been fighting about the fact that the disciples and the crowd, all they were thinking about was setting up an earthly Messiah. He could have been thinking, praying about how do, I, how do I get the crowds back safely without any harm to them. He could have been thinking about this next step in his ministry. There's lots of things he could have been praying about, practical things. But at any rate, we read from John 6:19 that when the boat... Well, we read in Matthew 14, verse 24, when the boat was already over a mile from land, and John 6:19 says, after they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea. He was coming near the boat, for they were afraid. So over a mile in Matthew is three or four miles in John. That's a good long way to be rowing in a storm. Jesus apparently looked out across the sea and saw they were in trouble. He says, well, I better go help them out. Don't have a boat, not a problem. I'll just walk on the water. We go to Matthew 14, verse 25. This is the Holman Christian Study Bible. Around 3 in the morning, he came toward them walking on the sea. Now, I like the Christian Standard Bible because it translates foreign units of measure, time, weight, liquid measures, solid measures, all of that, uh, monetary measures, into plain English that we can understand. The NIV has about the fourth watch. Well, assuming this is the Roman reckoning, not the Jewish, according to the NIV Study Bible, the first watch is from 6 to 9 at night. The second watch is from 9 to midnight. The third watch is from midnight to 3 a.m. in the morning. And the fourth watch is from 3 to 6 o'clock. And so the Holman Christian Study Bible says around 3 in the morning, which is the fourth watch, which is the NIV says. So it's deep into the night, early morning, 
Jesus is walking to them on the sea. By the way, the Jewish reckoning of watches is first watch is sunset to 10, second watch is 10 to 2 a.m., and third watch is 2 a.m. to sunrise. They don't have, uh, uh, John Gills raises a question that says the Jews themselves dispute whether there are three or four watches, and Gill has hours of the Jewish watches that are different from the NIV study Bible, so apparently there's a little bit of confusion or scholarly disagreement on when the Jewish watches were. I haven't researched that at all. But we just need to remember that's a constant problem that comes up. Are we talking about Roman time or are we talking about Jewish time? But at any rate, it was after 3 o'clock in the morning. We go to chapter 14, verse 26. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. How did they see him? It was dark. It was night. Well, there could have been moonlight, which would make the specter of Jesus' figure even more terrifying. Or it was getting close to daybreak. I mean, 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock in the morning is getting close to when the sun comes up. Either way, they saw him outlined walking on the sea, and they mistook him. They didn't realize it wasn't Jesus. They thought it might be a ghost. Gill says they might have thought it was a demon in human form, more particularly a she-demon called Lilith that used to appear at night. Uh, the name came from the Hebrew word for the night. A she-demon that appeared in the night with a human face carried off young children and killed them. So that was sort of a legend going around, and the disciples might have thought, "Yee, this is a she-demon. They got Jesus mixed up with a she-demon. And sailors are particularly superstitious, and they're subject to notions that sights of ghostly figures on the water pretend nothing but evil. Some of them might have even thought it was the same demon that raised the storm. Who knows what they thought, but they were afraid because it says they cried out in fear. Matthew chapter 14, verse 27, the next verse. Immediately Jesus spoke to them, have courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Now the disciples had two things to be afraid of. They could be afraid of the storm, which could have sunk their little fishing boat, or two, they thought they could be afraid of what they thought was a ghost. They had plenty of reasons to be afraid, and Jesus is saying, ah, don't worry, it's me, or it is I, to be more proper about the English. Now when you know that you're in Jesus' presence, that should dispel all fear. Disciples weren't quite convinced that, you know, that it was Jesus. We read in verse 28, Peter says this, Lord, if it's you, Peter answered him, command me to come to you on the water. Now, this is interesting here. Was Peter showing a lack of faith, or was he showing faith? Well, you can argue either way. Gill says, yes, it was a lack of faith. He should be chastised for his weak faith, because a weak faith is always wishing for signs and miracles. And Peter did not credit Jesus at his word. And I think, in my humble opinion, that Gill is totally wrong here. I mean, good heavens. You see a ghostly figure walking on the water. He's given them no notice that he's going to do that. Who knows what it could have been a demon walking on the water. How did he know? He hears the voice through the stormy waves and the wind blowing. and might not have heard Jesus' voice clearly. And so he wants some proof. And he's willing to get out of the boat and walk on water. To me, that shows exactly the opposite of weak faith. That shows a strong faith. He's willing to get out. I wonder if John Gill would have gotten out of the boat and walked on the water to show. Uh, would, would he say he had weak faith if he did that? Some guy named Bishop Hall, I'm getting this from Jameson Fawcett and Brown commentary. It was a bold spirit, says Bishop Hall, that could wish it. More bold that could act it, not fearing either the softness or the roughness of that uncouth passage. I like that 19th century liter uh, literary style. Yeah, he had faith. He got out of the boat. I'd, like, I'd challenge anybody who says he has, Peter didn't have any faith here. You get out of the boat. And then talk to me about how Peter doesn't have faith. Matthew chapter 14, verses 29 through 30. Come, he, Jesus said, and climbing out of the boat, 
Peter started walking on the water and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the strength of the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Now, why did Jesus immediately say, sure, come on? Uh, uh, if he had not done that, the rest would have not have believed it was Jesus. Because Peter had asked, he said, Jesus, if it's you, c command me to come to you on the water. And if he hadn't have said that, and if, and if Jesus had not said come, the rest of the people would have thought it was not demon, that it was, that it was not Jesus. It was probably a demon, and they wouldn't have asked Jesus to come on, and they might have sunk. And he also was going to, he was commending Peter's love and faith. Peter had enough faith to climb out of the boat, and Jesus said, sure, come on. He encouraged Peter. Jesus always encourages and encourages us when we show faith. All right, so G Peter gets out of the boat, but then unfortunately he saw the strength of the wind. The wind's blowing pretty hard here, contrary wind, and he started to sink. He became afraid and started to sink. And of course, oh, this makes for such good application. The reason we sink, the reason we start get being afraid and sinking in our lives is because we take our mind off of Jesus and we put our eyes on these circumstances, the adverse circumstances that are threatening to sink us, and then indeed we start to sink. If we keep our eyes on Jesus, we walk on the water, we walk above the circumstances. Now notice that when his faith weakened and he started to sink, did Jesus look at him and say, Hey, what's the matter with you, Peter? You don't have any faith? Now, he did rebuke him later and said, Are you a little faith? But what was the first thing he did when Peter cried out, Lord, save me? And Peter did show that he trusted the Lord. Even though he didn't have faith to walk on the water, he still trusted Jesus because he called on Jesus to save him. That's another thing. Instead of thinking that somebody, when things are going bad and you have somebody say, Well, if you just had faith, you just had faith, you'd make it. That's not what Jesus did. He didn't say, Peter, if you'd have just had faith, you'd keep walking on the water. What's the matter with you? I, of course, am referring to an unfortunate tendency in the hyper-faith movement to really get down on people who don't have faith. I remember one guy, his name was Mark. He's dead now. He died as a young man because of name it and claim it stupidity. But he went to a grocery store and he saw a crippled man trying to shop, limping around, pushing the groceries, and he came back he was in my dorm room, and he said, if that man just had faith, he'd walk again. What's the matter with him? And I thought, man, you are the most callous, unfeeling, unsympathetic, unloving person I've ever met in my life. And that's what that extreme hyper-faith, name it and claim it, blab it and grab it, mark it and park it, possess it and confess it uh, type of theology will do for you. But notice that Jesus didn't do that. He didn't rebuke Peter right off. He well, we'll see in the next verse. He reached out and grabbed him and saved him from sinking. And that's what we should do if our faith falters, unfortunately. Instead of condemning ourselves, we need to look to the Lord and say, Help me! Save me! That's what Peter did. Verse 31. Immediately Jesus reached out his hand. Jesus didn't doubt. He didn't spend, take time to start chastising Peter for his lack of faith. He immediately reached out his hand, caught hold of him, and said to him, You have little faith, why did you doubt? So you see, he rescued him first, and then he chastised him. And I suspect he was very gentle about this. Peter, you little man of little faith, why did you doubt? It's always amazed me how Jesus, as a matter of course, expected people to believe him. This is the way I paraphrase this. Peter, just because you're in the middle of a stormy lake in the middle of the night standing on the water without a boat, why in the world would you think that would be a problem? <laughs> Jesus expects us to believe in him. And as I said earlier, he reproved Peter after he caught Peter. This shows that Jesus is not going to test us beyond our ability to handle it. And after he saved him from the disaster, after he reproved him for having little faith, then what did he do? 
he helped Peter walk on the water, which, of course, reinvigorated Peter's faith. Jesus is not trying to tear us down because we have little faith. He's trying to build our faith up. And so he caught hold of him and helped him start walking again as they walked back to the boat. Now, that was a great adventure that Peter had. It was a great story. It's a great testimony. But that adventure didn't come without cost. Peter had to have to, he had to have had the guts to get out of that boat to start with. So he might have had a little faith when he was walking on the water compared to what Jesus expected. But compared to me, he had a lot of faith just to put his leg over the gunnel of that, of that fishing boat and put his foot on a stormy sea of Galilee. My gosh, I admire him. So when Jesus said, oh, you have a little faith, he was probably referring to when Peter was sinking, not referring to when Peter got out of the boat. Matthew 14, verses 32 through 33. When they got into the boat, this is when Jesus and Peter walked walked to the boat, the wind ceased. Then those in the boat worshipped him and said, truly, you are the Son of God. Now, of course, the implication here is that Jesus caused the wind to cease because it happened just as soon as they climbed into the boat, which means they were saved from their peril. I mean, you, it could have happened a natural thing. The storm could have ceased all at once. But I think that it, because it stopped, it was blowing so hard and it stopped so suddenly and it happened right when Jesus climbed into the boat, they put two and two together and figured Jesus had stopped it, which I'm sure he did. After Peter's failure of faith, Jesus saved him twice. He saved him from sinking and then he saved him from that storm that could have sunk the boat, as well as saving the rest of the apostles. Now, notice that this ceasing of the storm was not in response to a prayer on the part of the disciples. You know, Jesus a lot of times says, be it done unto you according to your faith. But we ought not to take that as a formula, a chemical, mathematical formula that says that the more faith one musters up, the more Jesus will do. Because sometimes Jesus will do more than you ask or think, as Paul tells the Ephesians in Ephesians 2, I think it is. And here, Jesus did more than they asked or thought. They didn't ask. He stopped the wind, saved saved himself as well as the other disciples. Who was in the boat, by the way, that said, truly, you're the Son of God? I just always assumed it would be the disciples. John Gill says, no, nah, it couldn't be the disciples because after all the miracles they had seen, they would already, or actually, Adam Clark says this, that after all the miracles they had seen, they would know that he was the Son of God already. Well, I don't know about that. I think that uh, they might have thought he was the Son of God, but they might have had doubts. They might have needed to have their faith reinforced, and they're just reaffirming the fact they already believed he was the Son of God, but now we've got even more evidence he's the Son of God. So I, I believe it was the disciples that said that. Uh, John Gill says it wasn't the disciples. It was the ship owners, servants, mariners, and so forth. I don't believe it. I believe it was mariners. It was a shipping. It was a fishing boat. I can't believe that all they had that many people on the boat besides the disciples. Truly, you are the Son of God, the disciples said. A son has the nature of his father, and that's what where the phrase son of God comes from. Jesus has the nature of God. He's divine. Just like my son has my genes, Jesus had divine genes. He was God just like his father was God. Matthew chapter 14, verse 34. Once they crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret. Now, Gennesaret is, well, it's two. Gennesaret refers to two possible things. One is a little town right south of Capernaum, still on the northwest to the Sea of Galilee, right north of Magdala, which where Mary Magdalene, Magdalene was from, which is about half, I think, on the east side, excuse me, on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. Now, Gennesaret could either refer to that town or it could refer to the plain that went approximately from the town of Gennesaret back up to Capernaum. And this is not a harmonization problem because assuming they went back to Capernaum, 
they landed at Gennesaret, which was close enough on, on that plane that Capernaum was in the plane of Gennesaret, so they landed at Gennesaret. They, when they went to Capernaum, they landed at Gennesaret, the plane of Gennesaret. Not a problem there in a harmonization. So let's go to Matthew chapter 14, verses 35 through 36. When the men of that place recognized him, recognized Jesus, they alerted the whole vicinity and brought to him, brought to Jesus, all who were sick. They were begging him. This is a standard scene we are seeing now. They were begging him that they might only touch the tassel on his robe, and as many as touched it were made perfectly well. Now, Jesus apparently here was wearing the typical robe of a Jewish rabbi that had tassels on it. This came from the law, Numbers 15, verse 38. Speak to the Israelites and tell them that throughout their generations they are to make tassels for the corners of their garments and put a blue cord on the tassel at each corner. Now notice that the people were not even bothering to ask Jesus to heal him. They were just touching the tassel. They didn't ask Jesus to lay his hands upon them. They didn't even try to speak to him at all. Why? Well, it could be to show that their faith was so strong they needed to touch only the they needed only to touch the tassels without having to say anything to show that they believed strongly, or they could have felt unworthy. We can't ask the great rabbi anything. We're just lowly peasant people, so they were scared to talk to Jesus. But at any rate, it didn't matter because as many as touched it were made perfectly well to see the power that was flowing out of Jesus. You wonder did that flowing out of power make him extremely tired? I don't know. At any rate, ladies and gentlemen, that's the end of chapter 14. We'll take up chapter 15 later. Jesus is now back at Capernaum, his base of operations. Hope you enjoyed this video. I'm sorry. Hope you enjoyed this audio.